Hello and welcome to episode 18 of Holy Crap It's Sports with Pete Davis, your host. Pete can't be here today, so I will be here. I'm Pete's evil twin, who also goes by the name Pete. It's a lovely Wednesday afternoon, May 15, 2019. You've got a lot going on, especially for you Braves fans. It's like uh, the Blue Jays experienced a couple weeks ago with Vlad Guerrero, and now you've got a kid not as hyped as Vlad Jr., but... Uh, Pretty good, has pretty good last two weeks down in uh, AAA is coming up tonight to make his major league uh, debut this year. I think he did come up a little bit last year, though, uh, 2018. Well, once again, if you'd like to uh, write me, in fact, I do have a couple letters here I want to read. You can uh, follow me on Twitter at Pete Davis One. That's the number one at Pete Davis One. Or you can write me uh, Pete Davis One at Yahoo, as uh, these two gentlemen have. In fact, I got one of them right here. I throw the other one on the floor. By the way, tonight's uh, broadcast brought to you by Schaefer Beer. It's uh, corn brewed or something like that. The only way you can drink Schaefer or Schaefer Light is to get it ice freaking cold in a cooler and then put the cooler in the swimming pool so it floats and then throw the, the uh, poolside furniture into the pool and sit in it on a nice hot day and just have the full, you know, if someone needs a beer, you just push the cooler toward them. That's what we used to do out in Stone Mountain. Anyway, let's see, blah, blah, blah. Joe has written me, says, Hi, Pete, I know you like to know where people listen to your podcast. I live in Atlanta, but we are on a cruise in the Caribbean. I have the ship's Wi-Fi, and I download your podcast when you post it and listen to it when I exercise. Yes, I exercise when I'm on vacation. Why the hell do you do that? So today, I listened to Holy Crap at Sports on a ship and the waters off the coast of Honduras. Honduras, And by the way, I mentioned this a few weeks ago. I've actually got listeners in Australia, which is, I think, pretty cool. So now I've got uh, one in a ship off the coast of Honduras. Hopefully it's not one of those ships that has the E. coli thing going on. Also, uh, Eric uh, said you should make your alcohol sips tonight, Schaefer, like, uh, sound like a commercial when you do that. This commercial break brought to you by so-and-so, and then whatever you're drinking, along with uh, some of your dry, dry wit commentary about said drink. Well, I just did that, Eric. Uh, if you're good at it, maybe you'll at- attract a sponsor. Holy crap, it's sports, brought to you by Schaefer Light. I can see it's got a nice ring to it. Anyway, just saying, Eric says, thank you, Eric. So weigh in, I'll read your stuff on the air. We got lots going on here. I don't have my rundown in front of me because I did not write it down today. But we're going to be talking about the Braves prospect, Austin Riley, coming up. Uh, Today was the day that Joe DiMaggio started his great streak, 56-game hitting streak, back in 41. So we'll be talking about each team's longest hit streak king. And you might be surprised by some of the guys. Some of these guys are famous and Hall of Famers, and some guys you probably have never heard of. Plus, there's an interesting book out. I'll tell you about it, about... um, Old ballparks, old baseball parks compared to the new baseball parks and why uh, they've changed over the last 100-plus years, especially some of the old parks like Shide Park or Wrigley or Fenway or the new parks like SunTrust here in Atlanta. Anyway, uh, by the way, the uh, lovely Holy Crap at Sports uh, website and sound studio comes to you from Sandy Springs, Georgia. Uh, sad news for the Cubbies and uh, Ben Zobrist in particular. Chris Sale makes history for the Red Sox, but comes up empty in a lot of ways. It's kind of sad. Alex Cora 
could be in trouble for that. And also this date in baseball history. So let's start with the, the latest call-up. By the way, just two days ago on the podcast, I asked the question, the musical question, is Vlad Guerrero Jr. overrated? And what does he do? He goes out last night and slams two home runs. So I guess that answers that question. So it's good to see him finally get off the schneid when it comes to hitting the long ball. Only took him a couple of weeks. Hopefully it won't take Austin Riley that long. The highly regarded prospect for the Braves is going to take a roster spot previously filled by Ender Enciarte, who's going to go on the injured list and has already, he's got lower back tightness, something with the lumbar. You never want to hear that word. Uh, Austin Riley has hit 391. That's 27 for 69 with 13 home runs over his past 18 games for the Gwinnett Stripers. Remember, they used to be called the Gwinnett Braves, but too many people were mistaking the two teams, the Major League and Minor League. So now they're the Stripers, which is a fish. They tell me the 22 year old slugger hit a grand slam last night. That was Tuesday night and a win over Buffalo and Austin Riley has homered 10 times through his first 50 at bats this month alone. And he may be benefiting from an opportunity to talk to an older gentleman. You should always learn from your elders. And that's what he did. Cause back in February, uh, Riley went out to California to spend a few days hitting training and playing a few rounds of golf with none other than Albert Pujols. Pretty good uh, right-handed bat to learn from since Austin's a righty as well. And he said, Pujol said a lot of good things. One thing I took to heart, it's using your legs. He said, I wasn't fully tapped into my power because I'm not using my legs 100%. If I wasn't really sitting down on my legs and really trusting that, and once I do that, I was going to start driving balls further. It's worked. Uh, let's see, Riley's promotion comes one week after the Braves opted to add his versatility by allowing him to play the outfield, which is good timing because that's what he's going to be playing tonight. He's going to be playing left field, batting sixth against the Cardinals. And the Braves need it because they got pounded by the Cardinals uh, last night. Enciarte is sidelined, so Ronald Acuna Jr. will probably be in center field. Riley's going to be in left field, but he will play third base. His natural position is third. And, of course, right now he's blocked by Josh Donaldson. But manager Brian Snicker says uh, once Donaldson wants to sit down a day or two, a rest every once in a while, that while Austin Riley is up here, we don't know how long he'll be here, he will fill in at third base as well. Now, had the Braves delayed Riley's arrival by a few more weeks, as some teams have been doing, like the Blue Jays, they could have avoided him gaining an extra year of arbitration as a Super 2 player. Likely, he's now going to gain that status. But if he lives up to his potential since being selected in the first round of the 2015 draft, he could position himself to gain a long-term extension similar to the one you know, that Acuna got and Ozzie Albies got. Probably somewhere in between the two. Who knows? We'll see what's going on. I'll probably... Not as much as Albies, since Albies has gotten off to such a great start. By the way, how did they get Austin Riley? Well, he was like the either the 41st or the 45th pick in the draft back in 2015. And they got that by trading Craig Kimbrell to the Padres. Remember that trade? They got a lot of things back from the Padres on that one. Uh, MLB Pipeline ranks Riley as the number four prospect in the Braves organization and baseball's 34th prospect overall. Only Toronto's uh, Vlad Jr. and Cincinnati's Nick Senzel, both of them up now, rank higher as third base prospects. And you got to think, everyone talking about Vlad's shape of his body, like I did, and how long he's going to be at third base. Well, we've had some big third basemen over the years. Think of... Um, Panda out there, Sandoval out in San Francisco. Time for a little sip of the Schaefer here. It's a beautiful day, by the way. See, it's going to be in the 90s in Atlanta on on the weekend. It's going to feel like July. And boy, I bet you people listening up in New York, and I've got some listeners in New York, I found out. 
up there in Baltimore, New York, Philadelphia. You can't wait. I heard that uh, like it didn't get over uh, 50 degrees yesterday up there. I, Anyway, uh, MLB.com put out a little list of each team's longest hitting streak. And the reason they did that, because it was on this day that Joe DiMaggio started his streak back in 41 of 56 straight. So here we go. American League East, you may have heard of this guy for the Blue Jays, Sean Green. Hit 28 straight games back in 1999. It was a breakout season for Green. Led the AL in doubles with 45, total bases with 361, and hit 42 homers, stole 20 bases. I mean, this guy was great, left-handed bat. Uh, Reminds me of uh, the Bellinger kid playing for L.A. right now. A month after that season ended, Toronto traded him to the Dodgers, and he was basically, I think, a bust out there. He was from L.A. He got out there and, uh, frankly, never really lived up to what he was doing in Toronto. Should have stayed in the great white north. Uh, Some of you old SETV people get that. Anyway, the Orioles, their longest streak, Eric Davis. You think of him as a red leg, but he was with the Orioles a bit. 30-game streak back in 98. He was 36 years old then and had health problems. Uh, remember when he helped win the 1990 World Series for the Reds, he injured himself in the outfield, and something inside of him ruptured. I forget, was it the spleen or whatever? Anyway, uh, the franchise record, though, for the Baltimore Orioles is actually held by a St. Louis Brown. Remember, they didn't, didn't move to Baltimore until the mid-50s. Uh, George Sisler, the great uh, George Sisler Hall of Famer, 41 games in 1922 for the Browns. Uh, the Tampa Bay Rays, their longest is just 19 games. That was done back in 2009 by Jason Bartlett. And Tampa Bay is the only franchise without a 20-game hitting streak. Mm. Uh, the Red Sox, you may have heard of this guy. His name's DiMaggio. Not Joe. Dom DiMaggio, his brother. 34-game hitting streak in 1949, eight years after his older brother uh, did it. Was it his younger brother? I don't remember. Uh, DiMaggio set the franchise mark for the Sox in 49, surpassing Tris Speaker's 30-game streak from 1912. Tris Speaker. Uh, look him up. One of the great center fielders in baseball, Hall of Famer. The Yankees, of course, Joe DiMaggio, 56 games in 41, the longest in MLB history by 11 games. Think about that. No player since 1980 has even cracked the 40-game mark. AL Central, the Indians, Nap Lejoy. I've always mispronounced that. Uh, 31 games back in 1906. He played in Cleveland from 1902 to 14. Also managed the club from 05 to 09. And it was known as the Naps in his honor until 1915. Kansas City Royals. Well, here's a newcomer. Whit Merrifield. 31 games last year and this year. He hit in the final 20 games of the 2018 season and the first 11 of this one to pass the franchise legend George Brett, who made a serious run at 400 back in 1980 when he hit in 30 straight and ultimately finished with 390 batting average. It looked like Merrifield might stay tied with Brett, but he got to uh, 31 games by dropping down a game-tying squeeze-bunt single in the seventh inning of a game against the Mariners. And the streak, unfortunately, ended the very next day. He went 0-4-6. What was I going to say here about Whit Merrifield? Oh, a lot of people complaining, it has to be done in the same season. Ah, bullshit. Anyway, remember, this is the podcast. We can say things like that now. Uh, the Tigers, Ty Cobb. We'll be learning more about Ty Cobb, the Georgia Peach, and this day in baseball history. Yeah, he had one of his nut-ups. But Ty Cobb hit for 40 games straight in 1911, batted 476 during that streak, and for the whole season, a career-high 419, Detroit's longest streak since, it was then, since then was also on by Ty Cobb, by 35-gamer. Back in 1917. The Twins, 
Some of you might remember this kid, Ken Landro. 31 games back in 1980. I call him Kid. He's older than me. Landro earned his lone all-star selection in 1980, but was traded to the Dodgers the following spring. That's how I remember him as a Dodger. He was a sweet swinging guy, though. He had a really nice swing. A franchise record, though, was held by the Washington Senators. Remember, the Senators moved to the Minnesota in the early 60s. Uh, Heine Manush, 33 games for the 1933 Senators. White Sox, their longest is Carlos Lee, 28 games in 2004. The record had previously been set at 27 by the great Luke Appling in 1936. In the American League West, the uh, Angels, Garrett Anderson, Mr. Angel, I'd say, 28 games back in 1998. Rod Carew's franchise mark of 25 straight games was a hit uh, from 1982 that stood for a while. Uh, the Astros, Willie Tavares, remember him? 30 games back in 2006. The Athletics, Jason Giambi. You wouldn't think of him, the, the slugger, the power guy, uh, having a hitting streak, but he did. 25 games back in 97, but the franchise record wasn't set in Oakland. It was set way back in 1925. The Philadelphia Athletics, Bob, or no, Bill Lamar. Want to get his name right because it's the last time you'll probably ever hear it. Bill Lamar, 29 games. Let's see, the Mariners, you know who the Mariners guy is, Ichiro Suzuki, 27 games, you'd think it'd be more, in 2009, and it's fitting that the team's all-time hits leader holds the longest hitting streak in M's franchise history. The Rangers, you've heard about this guy, Gabe Kapler, the Phillies manager, 28 games in 2000, the Tigers traded him to Texas after the 99 season as part of a deal for two-time AL MVP Juan Gonzalez, Juan Gon. Gabe Kapler, I remember he had a TV commercial when he was a minor leaguer. He was going to be the next guy. Well, he really wasn't. Uh, National League East, the Braves, once again, it's a power guy. Dan Ugla, ugh, 33 games back in 2011. And look at, he was a pure slugger. He racked up 154 homers in his first five seasons, but that was with the Marlins. And he used to kill the Braves with home runs, and then the Braves get him, and he can't hit squat. Anyway, he joined Atlanta in 2011. It was a little surprising that he was kind of a stocky second baseman. Uh, kind of, I think he had too many muscles, frankly. Would finish that campaign with just a 233 average. Hit safely in 33 straight in his first year. But the franchise record was set back in Boston in 1945. Tommy Holmes, 37 games. Tommy Holmes, a very good player. The Marlins uh, record holder for consecutive games hit uh, was Luis Castillo. 35 in 2002. He hit 305 that year, stole 48 bases, led the majors in steals. And a side note here a native of the Dominican Republic, Luis Castillo's 35 game streak remains the record for a foreign born player. Uh, let's see, the Mets, Moise Salou, 30 games in 2007. He was 40 years old at the time. His second to last year of his career hit 341 for the Mets in 87 games. The Nationals, well, he's pretty much Mr. Nat so far. Ryan Zimmerman, 30-game streak back in 2009. Uh, in addition to being the franchise leader in hits, home runs, and RBIs, Zimmerman owns the longest hitting streak by a Nationals player. They moved from Montreal in 05, the first year of Zimmerman's career, thanks to his 30-game burst in 09. By the way, the franchise record set by Vladimir Guerrero Sr., 31 games in the 1999 season for the Montreal Expos. And for the Phillies, Jimmy Rollins, 38 games, 2005 and 06. 
and he did it in two seasons. NL Central, the Brewers, Paul Molitor, Hall of Famer, 39 games in 1987, putting together the AL's longest hitting streak since DiMaggio's record setter. Uh, The Cardinals, here's a guy from the past, Hall of Famer Rogers Hornsby, 33 straight games in 1922 he hit in safely. Uh, The second baseman already was one of baseball's top players when he hit in 33 straight in 22 at age 26. But the run helped him bat 4-1 for the year. He became the first National League player to reach 250 hits in a season. 250 hits. Uh, The Cubs, Bill Dahlen, 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 D-A-H-L-E-N, 42 games back in... Oh, your rides here, Bill. 1894. Dahlen was the fourth longest streak on record, though the franchise was known as the Colts at that time, the Chicago Colts. Jerome Walton holds the modern record of 30, set during his NL rookie year campaign of 1989. Remember, remember he and Dwight Smith uh, Sr. came up the same year, and I thought the Cubs were set for the next 10 years in the outfield, and neither one of them really was great. They were serviceable. The Pirates' uh, record holder is Charlie Grimm. Grimm with two M's, 30 games back in the two seasons of 22 and 23. So good for him. And, of course, the Reds, Pete Rose, 44 games back in 1978, embraced the challenge of going after DiMaggio's mythical 56-game record. Well, not mythical. Uh, It's true. His 44-game run remains the modern-day National League mark. What's more, Rose pulled off the streak at age 37, on the hills of reaching the 3,000 hit mark earlier in the 78 campaign. Now, I remember that his controversial end happened in Atlanta, Atlanta Fulton County Stadium, or whatever they were calling it that time. Larry McWilliams was the starter. He was a left-hander who started off great, but then kind of fizzled with the Braves and the Rangers. And uh, he held him hitless through most of the game. And then Gene Garber came in as the closer. You know how that funky uh, kind of throw he had? He was like Dan Quisenberry, not, not as low as Quiz was. Gene Garber came in. And uh, he struck him out and jumped up and down, as, as later Pete Rose disgustedly said, like he'd won the Game 7 of the World Series. And Gene Garber responded, well, he was hitting like it was Game 7 of the World Series. <laughs> Look it up, kids. Uh, National League West, D-backs. Uh, Luis Gonzalez, the uh, World Series hero, hit for 30 straight games in 1999. The Dodgers... Willie Davis, uh, no relation, I, maybe, uh, 31 games back in 1969. And according to MLB.com, they say it's surprising that da- Willie Davis holds the club record because there were so many great players for the Dodgers. Willie Davis was a hell of a player. Anyway, uh, the Giants, Jack Clark, another slugger, 26 games in 1978. The franchise record for the Giants, though, was set back in New York in 1893. George Davis. 33 games. Uh, George Davis, uh, I have no idea if we're related. The Padres, Benito Santiago, which is surprising. He was a catcher, very good one. 34 games in 1987 at the ripe young age of 22, won the National League Rookie of the Year and Silver Slugger at catcher in 1987. And many people thought, uh, I was out there, living out there when Santiago was playing, and people thought he was a Hall of Famer, but he just fizzled out. Uh, The Rockies, Nolan Arenado, of course, 28 games set in 2014. Let's take another Schaefer light here. Or maybe upgrade to Schaefer. You're listening to Holy Crap in Sports, episode 18. Hope you're enjoying it. If you are, uh, hook a brother up at patreon.com. You can always listen on stitcher.com, iTunes. Uh, You can go to uh, my Facebook page. Follow me, Pete Davis, or the Twitter, 
my Twitter, Pete Davis One. And as, oh, by the way, we got news. Uh, you can see it on the Kimmer Facebook page, The Kimmer Show, Monday through Friday, 3 to 6 p.m. Uh, Atlanta time. And that's on Talk 1067 FM. But we just got word uh, yesterday that we know our end date. They sold the station to a so-called Christian outfit out in California. Anyway, they uh, are going to start playing Christian pop music because we can't get enough of that. I'm a Christian, and I don't like Christian pop music. But anyway, we already got one in town called The Fish, which, by the way, is the number one rated uh, station in town. It kicked WSB off for the first time in two years, not around Christmas when they play Christmas music. Uh, The Fish, we've already got the number one rated uh, station in town playing Christian pop. So, yeah, of course, we need more. But anyway... May 31st is our last day, so if you're a listener on the Kimmer Show, May 31st is our last day if you haven't heard already. But enjoy it between now and then. By the way, this podcast is going to change a little after that because right now some people have asked me, why don't you do the funny stuff you do when you talk about all sports during your sports cast sometime between 5.10 and 5.25 p.m. every Monday through Friday afternoon. And I said, well, I don't want to do that because you can already hear that on our podcast of the show the Kimmer Show, or go back and listen to the replay, whichever, whatever uh, they're calling it these days, the kids. Anyway, uh, so I, you can do it there. So I just stick to baseball stuff here on this show. But that will change after May 31st. I'm going to start incorporating some of the funnier stuff we do over there into this show as well. So we'll have that going for us, which is nice. A uh, new book is out by critic Paul Goldberger. He writes for Vanity Fair and traces how baseball and stadium design reflect our changing opinions of which cities they're in. And it's true. I don't like calling baseball stadium stadiums. They're ballparks. Football, it's like the old George Carlin bit, football versus baseball. Football is very militaristic and baseball is very pastoral. Uh, Pastoral uh, meaning, um, if you went to Auburn, uh, farm-like. I'm just kidding. I love Auburn kids. Anyway, uh, Patrick Sisson wrote this uh, article, and it's about Paul Goldberger's new book. And the book is called Ballpark, Baseball in the American City. And it's written by Mr. Goldberger, who is a Vanity Fair editor, author, and a critic. And he says, America, and this is a quote, remember James Earl Jones' quote, the monologue in Field of Dreams, America has rolled by like an army of steamrollers. It's been erased like a blackboard, rebuilt and erased again, but baseball has marked the time. Of course, I can't do it in the deep voice that James Earl Jones does, but uh, that's a famous quote, maybe the most famous one about the connection between a ballpark and the landscape. Well, in this new book, Ballpark Baseball in the American City, he writes from the sports urban roots of the late 18th or 19th century to today's era of mega developments, Braves, and technologically advanced stadiums, like Oakland's going to try and build, uh, which will mirror the country's views on urban living. Uh, From the utilitarian beauty of the early 20th century ballparks like Wrigley Field in Chicago and Fenway in Boston, each of them nestled into a neighborhood, to the donut-shaped concrete structures that sprouted in suburbia after World War II. I see you, Pittsburgh and St. Louis and Cincinnati and Philadelphia and Atlanta and Oakland and just about San Diego and everywhere else. Anyway, the U.S. cities. By the way, I was going to mention something. The first time I walked up to Fenway Park, I didn't know there was a park there. You're walking along a brick wall. My friend, uh, the late, great Jack Kennedy, funny that he'd be showing me around Boston, uh, great sports guy here in Atlanta, 
he uh, said, you know where you're standing next to the ballpark? And I go, where? And he's like, there. There's the ballpark, Fenway. It was absolutely gorgeous. Later on, we went to the top of the Pru. He knew a sports agent. I think his name was Bob Wolf. And uh, we got, and uh, one of the lovely ladies that worked for uh, Mr. Wolf uh, got us into, and we don't say who in case it was illegal. She got us into there uh, after we'd been hitting some of the bars around town. One, particularly the Hub in Boston, which is great, by the way. A lot of co-eds in there. Boston's a great city for co-eds. Let me put it that way. People say there's not good-looking women in Boston. Uh, I beg to differ. But anyway. We got to the top of the Prue in Bob Wolf's office and looked down on snowy, snow-covered Fenway Park, and it was kind of lit up for some reason. It was just—it was like heaven. And I know I've said before, Wrigley Field is heaven, and Fenway is my favorite park. And I haven't been since they supposedly cleaned it up a little bit, because that will make me sad. Because I love the fact it looked dirty and dingy, and it did look like Babe Ruth pitched there. Yeah, it did. I'm sorry. Anyway, in this story about the book about the ballparks. It's got a picture of the outside of Old Scheib Park in uh, S-H-I-B-E in Philadelphia. I wish I'd seen this because it's beautiful. It's got, got a French, I think they call it French Restoration style or something, with a cupola outside of it. Anyway, many early teams, by the way, actually had ownership uh, in the trolley lines that brought the fans to the ballpark. In fact, the Brooklyn Dodgers, that's where they got their name. They were the trolley Dodgers at one point. If you go back and look at some of the old photos and film, there I mean, the trolley's tracks were everywhere. There wasn't ground. It was tracks that you ran across uh, dodging the trains. Anyway, uh, it all goes back uh, the way the split in baseball's history, somewhere in the 19th century, late 19th century, between those who wanted to see baseball as a Victorian gentleman's sport the embodiment of American values and those who saw it as more of a form of entertainment for the working class and players and audience. And Goldberger says it's a cultural split that exists in our culture today. And he's right. This was the era that produced Wrigley and Fenway, the cathedrals of modern baseball parks, as well as Scheib. Oh, it's the French Renaissance revival. I'm sorry. And all kinds of stuff like that. Baseball's loose rules about the size of the outfield, the left field and right field boundaries are very considerably varied, came in quite handy during the time when owners needed to assemble plots of land in urban neighborhoods, so they had the irregular, tightly packed parcels for ballparks. That's why you have the green monster. And the way it is. Goldberger goes into the history of the Ebbets Field in Brooklyn. And, you know, everybody just talks about it now like it was the greatest thing since sliced bread. And I wish I'd seen it. In fact, one day I'm going to go up there and look at where it once stood. I think it's a parking lot or something. Anyway, um, it wasn't necessarily a perfect work of architecture. Goldberger says a description of the park. Here it is. Quote, dirty bathrooms, narrow aisles, rusting pillars, and a general down-at-the-hills raffishness that charmed only those who did not patronize it regularly. Isn't that the way? I mean, I loved the old Fenway Park when it was dirty because I didn't have to go sit in it every day. (laughs) Anyway, uh, this era was followed by, of course, the post-war 50s and 60s boom of suburbia and the perfect cookie-cutter stadiums, the donuts, or concrete donuts, as Goldberger describes them. Bland, multi-purpose municipal parks. You could have football in there, soccer in there. You have you know uh, concerts in there, like Atlanta Fulton County, or it was called Atlanta Stadium or Fulton County. They've always messed around with the name. Of course, it's gone now. It's only a plaque there showing where Hank Aaron hit his 715th home plate and where Tom House called it in left field. But anyway, I digress. I remember going to games there. The Falcons games played there. The Braves played there. The Atlanta Chiefs 
uh, hockey, uh, the hockey uh, soccer team of the NASL long before MLS and the uh, champion uh, Atlanta United showed up. That was in 1969. I remember seeing games there. Anyway, that was the Concrete Donuts, and of course Oakland Coliseums like that, and Veteran Stadium in Philadelphia, and Three Rivers up there in uh, Pittsburgh. By the way, Veteran Stadium. The worst of the cookie cutters, and uh, I remember going to Bush Stadium in St. Louis, and it was pretty bad too. But Veteran Stadium, that was the worst uh, floor I'd ever seen. The AstroTurf was like paper thin. I don't know how they played football on it because if you jumped up and came down, it was like landing on concrete. Unbelievable how the uh, players' union put up with it. But the Dodgers basically were the harbingers of that era. They abandoned Ebbets Field in 1957 and moved, of course, to sunny Los Angeles and built, you know, some people say it's the most beautiful park. I think Wrigley is, but L.A.'s, it's gorgeous. And to be as old as me, it's like one year younger than me. It's unbelievably clean. Of course, it doesn't get that dirty out there. It's ringed, though, with surface parking lots that look like they go on forever there in Chavez Ravine. The Dodgers fan base have become more suburbanized in New York City, and that's why they moved. One of the reasons they moved from Ebbets, because it wasn't easy to get by car, and everybody was driving at that point. The Dodgers had fans who had moved to New Jersey and Long Island. It was 1955, and damn it, they wanted to drive to the ballpark, and there was no damn place to park the damn car. Uh, Goldberger thought the book uh, that he wrote would turn on the final phase, which would be a return to a a city sparked uh, like Camden Yards in Baltimore. Uh, Going back to the design uh, back in 1992 to recapture the urban integration of the earlier era with modern conveniences. But things started changing again. When he started doing research, Goldberger did for the book, he realized another era of ballparks was dawning, the era of the mega theme park developments. I'm talking about you Braves, for good or bad, in Cobb County. They moved out of a slightly south of downtown to north of the city in Cobb County. And basically, they own the area and the land and the retail and the apartments and co condos and everything around it. And that's how they're generating a lot of money for Liberty media which needs to sell the team but anyway and according it's going to be a new way of doing it the mega theme entertainment zone and uh, Goldberger isn't too happy with it he doesn't poo-poo it but he's not too happy with it because he'd like to see what Baltimore did he says also the St. Louis ballpark is doing it as well the new one they have and Wrigley Field they're actually changing the area around Wrigley Field which was a neighborhood field I remember that was one of the great things of going to a Cubs game you could sit uh, on the roof at Murphy's, you know, outside of center field, and hope a you know a ball would come out your way. Of course, it wouldn't over center field. That would be very rare. But it would be cool just to sit out there and drink, and then wander drunk into the ballpark later. In fact, I lost my tickets the first time we went up there, uh, drunk in Murphy's on the the roof. But anyway, the owners want to generate as much money as they can, and if you own everything around the ballpark. Well, by golly, that'll do it. And that's what they're doing in Wrigley. Goldberg says, everyone has learned enough to never do those suburban-style ballparks again, the concrete donuts. And that's a very good thing. As I mentioned, the Oaklands, you know, finally got permission to start looking at a place there beneath the Bay Bridge, just northwest of Jack London Square. And it's on the water, not on the bay, really, but off one of the offshoots of the bay. But um, it's going to take four years for an environmental study. Hell, they could build a stadium south of Oakland in that time. Anyway, time for another Schaefer Light. Mm-mm-mm. Good stuff, Mater. By the way, the Yankees have acquired first baseman Kendris Morales 
and cash from the A's. He's 35 years old, so he's not quite done just yet. Sad news in the, the Cubs world because Ben Zobrist has been out of the lineup for a while for personal reasons, and now we know why TMZ behind this, um, Cubs uh, reporting this, uh, Zobrist and his Christian pop singer wife are heading for divorce. Juliana Zobrist has filed the divorce papers. Uh, let's see. She deleted her Twitter account. She scrubbed her Instagram of most of their pics together. That's never good. Uh, court records in Illinois show that the singer filed the documents on Monday. Of course, Zobrist Ben was the World Series MVP when the Cubs won in 2016. He's a three-time All-Star, and she's pretty successful herself. She had a single from an album three years ago called Shatterproof, which hit the Billboard charts, and she sang God Bless America at Wrigley before Game 4 of the World Series that year. The Cubs lost the game, though. Sadly, Ben and Juliana have been married since 2005. They have three kids together. So sad news there. Maybe they'll be able to work it out. And did you ever think you'd hear the phrase Christian pop used twice in the same podcast? Edwin Jackson set a major league record by pitching for his 14th team. He made the debut for the Blue Jays today. It's Wednesday. 35-year-old right-hander threw an 88-mile-per-hour cutter to uh, San Francisco's leadoff hitter Joe Panic, who took it for a strike in the bottom of the first inning, and that meant he had played for 14 teams which broke the record of Octavio Dotel, who had pitched for 13. Red Sox ace Chris Sale struck out a career-high 17 batters in just 17 innings against the Rockies. Then he got pulled because he had thrown 108 pitches, the poor baby. It was a chilly Tuesday night in Fenway. He left the game with a 3-2 lead, and they lost, which they should. They're going to pull the guy who's thrown 17 strikeouts. They should lose. The Rockies rallied against the bullpen and won 5-4 to four in the 11th. Chris Sale became the first pitcher in Major League history to fan 17 in a start of no more than seven innings. Impressive, because he's had a rough start to the season. Afterwards, manager Alex Cora seemed comfortable saying uh, that uh, I needed to pull him, and Chris Sale seemed comfortable with the skipper making the right call. And as Sale said, AC, Alex Cora, has got two handshakes, and you get one or the other. And you know which one is the done one. I'd love to have gone back out there, but as I said, I'll never question anything he does. The big league record for strikeouts, of course, in nine innings is 20. It's been done five times. The cheater, Roger Clemens, did it twice for Boston. Kerry Wood did it for the Cubs. Randy Johnson did it. Uh, did he do that for the Diamondbacks? I'm not quite sure who he did that for. Max Scherzer did it in 2016. Uh, Boston fans chanted, we won't sail after the bottom of the seventh, but he did not come back out. By the way, Sale had used his fingers to form the no- number 20, and uh, Alex just shook his head. No, we don't think so. Uh, he didn't bite. So he sent out Brandon Workman. That's right, Hall of Famer Brandon Workman, who allowed a double to Chris Iannetta and a two-run homer by Charlie Blackman with two outs in the eighth, and Colorado took the lead. Of course, Boston tied it up, and they went to extra innings. And by the way, for the whole the whole game, Boston pitchers struck out 24, and they still lost. Mm-mm-mm. All right, I won't do that anymore. That. Uh-uh-uh. I don't know why I'm doing it. The last sip of the Schaefer, and that's the end of the Schaefer. God, I haven't had that in decades, and there's probably a good reason for that. Like I said, you got to get it cones, cold stone, frozen, almost to the point where there's ice in it before you, it's drinkable. Anyway, it's time to do this day in baseball history for May 15th. And we go all the way back. We're going to do them out of order. On this date in 1912, after days of taking verbal abuse from New York City fans, Tigers outfielder and the man of peace himself, Tyrus Raymond Cobb, finally had had enough. 
Jumping into the stands at Hilltop Park, that's where the Highlanders played, the Georgia Peach pummeled one man named Claude Luker, punching him in the head a dozen times. That He wasn't through. Knocked him to the floor, throw him to the ground, Centurion, roughly. Uh, then he started kicking Claude in the head with his metal cleats. Now, Claude, the poor guy, shouldn't have been running his mouth because he really couldn't throw much of a punch. Seems Claude only had two fingers. He had lost the other eight in an industrial accident. So I think Cobb took care of the last two for him. And uh, I told you I'd talk about Ty Cobb. On this day in 1952, Virgil Trucks throws the first of his two no-hitters that season, blanking the Senators one nothing. And get this. Thanks to a two-out, two-strike, bottom-of-the-ninth home run from Vic Wirtz. Remember Vic Wirtz, later famous in the 54 World Series, uh, the great catch Willie Mays had against him. Only 2,000 fans saw the first Tigers no-hitter in 40 years that day at Briggs Stadium in Detroit because of some stupid parade downtown Detroit. They're having some for some schmuck called MacArthur. Some oh wait, General Douglas MacArthur. All right. I think he had just been fired by the president, Harry S. Truman, wasn't he? On this date, 1968, Tigers fans on opening day boo pitcher Denny McLean for his comments on the local radio station, calling them the biggest front runners in the world. The same Denny McLean will later call those same fans the best fans in the world that season when he won his 30th game and led them to a World Series title over the Cardinals. But on this day, McLean says, quote, If they think we're stupid for playing this game, how stupid are they for coming out to watch us? End quote. On this day in 1970, the Braves' Rico Cardi sets the then-Atlanta record of hitting safely in 31 straight games with an RBI single at Crosley Field in Cincinnati. I still have my Rico Cardi big boy bat. Uh, what he had a huge bat, by the way. What brave later surpassed that record? Well, Dan Ugla, as we mentioned earlier. Mm. On this, I was, see, I almost did that again. Where am I getting that? On this date, 1991, Queen Elizabeth II joined President George Bush at an A's O's game in Baltimore. Unfortunately, the Queen ingested so many 12-inch hot dogs she vomited all over Orioles player Cal Ripken Jr. It was a nasty scene. On this day in 1862, I told you we're going to do them out of order. The Union Grounds, the new home of the Eckfords, opens in Brooklyn. The Williamsburg Ballpark is the first baseball facility to be enclosed entirely by a fence, thereby allowing paying customers only to view the games. Because they were big last time. In fact, later on, people would stand in the outfield to watch the games. On this date in 1941, we saw this earlier, Joe DiMaggio, his 56-game hitting streak began against White Sox pitcher Edgar Smith. He got one hit in every game until July 17th. Uh, he, he stopped in Cleveland with the help of outstanding defensive plays by third baseman Ken Keltner, who robbed him at least a couple times. And later on, I think he started another streak after that. Uh, 1968, hoping to fill the void created when the Braves moved to Atlanta, the White Sox played their first of nine games in Milwaukee. 23,000 showed up to watch the Pale Hose lose to the Angels in the first American League contest to take place in Milwaukee since 1901. On this date, 1981, at Cleveland's Municipal Stadium, the Indians' Lynn Barker pitched the 11th perfect game in Major League history, defeating the Blue Jays 3-zip. Catfish Hunter was the last pitcher to accomplish the feat, hurling a perfecto for the A's in 1968. Of course, this led to later on the Braves making and Ted Turner making the dumbest mistake, he said, as the owner of the Braves by training Brett Butler and a few other guys for Lynn Barker, who was already pretty much a tired arm by the time he got to Atlanta. It was kind of sad. On this date in 
On this day in 1998, on the day the Marlins trade, get this, here's a hell of a trade for you. This is the epitome of blockbuster. The Marlins trade Gary Sheffield, Bobby Bonilla, who's still getting paid by the Mets, Charles Johnson, who's a great defensive catcher, Jim Eisenreich, remember he had to deal with Tourette's Sender, and uh, he had a smooth swing too, and Manuel Barrios to the Dodgers for Mike Piazza and Todd Zeal. And on that day, the fish hang, hung on to beat the Cardinals at Bush Stadium, 8-7. to seven. So, good for them. Well, that's another episode of Holy Crap at Sports, number 18. Appreciate you listening. You can always hear, like I said, on iTunes, on my Facebook page, the Kimmer Facebook page, my uh, Twitter account, at Pete Davis one or uh, Stitcher has it, and a few other places as well. And you can catch up on us at our, uh, our website, Pete Davis dot buzzsprout.com that's the website that we have up for this uh, podcast and other things that we're going to be enjoying our last day on the air uh, on talk 106.7 FM Atlanta will be May 31st and it's going to be a blowout party they're talking about taking the show on the road so if you're in Atlanta drop on by I'm Pete Davis thanks everybody uh, once again thank you Esther and Mike for being such great supporters of the, uh, the podcast everybody have a good night Drink up, Shriners.